Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Anthony Porowski. Anthony is the food and wine expert on Queer Eye, which is one of my very favorite shows. And his second cookbook, Anthony, Let's Do Dinner, comes out September 14th. Anthony is thoughtful and gentle and earnest, and I am not, which is why I rudely compared the Polish cuisine he grew up with to eating a seven-layer burrito. All Polish food for me is like really nostalgic. It's the same elements kind of like used in different ways. There's always some kind of pork. There's always sour cream and some kind of carb. Cabbage, of course. It's like how at Taco Bell, there's seven ingredients and they just mix them all different ways to come up with a hundred menu Literally. Items. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Anthony shares the biggest culinary splurge that he's made after landing the hosting gig on Queer Eye. And a handful of Your Last Meal listeners chime in to confess what their bougiest kitchen purchases were. And then we will move far, far away from bougie and look into the history of the TV dinner. And if you haven't been able to travel abroad since the pandemic hit, you can travel around the world via the new Gastro Obscura book, where you will learn about some of the most surprising and strange moments in food past and present. A thing that the women would do is take a slice of apple and put it under their armpit before a dance. And at the end of the dance, they would remove the apple slice. The man had to eat the armpit apple. (laughs) Don't worry, there will be more on the apple armpit coming your way. But first, my conversation with Anthony. Let me just check your level real fast. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had four eggs over easy. I took one of the yolks out because my physician says I shouldn't have four yolks every single day. And I gave it to my dog so that she can get her omega-3s. I do not usually have this for breakfast, but I had leftover caviar that someone sent me. And so I had just spoons of that on my eggs and it was kind of glorious. So you had eggs and eggs. I literally had eggs and eggs. Mm -hmm. Did you give your dog any caviar? She loves it. Really? (laughs) Yeah. The bougiest dog? (laughs) See what fame has done to you? You're now a person who gives your dog caviar. I mean, she'll eat a slipper if I give it to her, (laughs) but I like to have her try stuff. I mean, I've learned the hard way that my cat will eat anything because I would leave out garbanzo beans and she loves them and I throw them and she runs after them. So yeah, I always say like, she's like a mother. We both love to eat it. But they're like, they're like high protein and high fiber. They're good for Mm -hmm. you. So it's like, why not? You know? Yeah. It's not like I'm giving her Doritos. appeared on our tv screen and we all became obsessed with the show i mean i kind of wish that all the episodes weren't released at once because i think a lot of us we just sit there and watch the whole thing no self-control no self-control but where did you come from what were you doing before queer eye (laughs) and how did you get the gig that's a loaded question a lot of information there um so let's start with um, birth where do I come from? Yeah. Birth. It was a cold March 14 in a city called Laval in Canada. I was born early in the morning. My father delivered me. Um, Did he really? He's a physician, by the way. So that gives you context. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and basically, yeah, I was raised in Montreal for most of my life, which I think in many ways just kind of shaped the way that I look at food and, and why I'm so drawn to like diversity of food and like just obsessed with food from different countries. And we traveled a lot as kids as well. And whenever we would go somewhere, the itinerary was all about 
the restaurant schedule. Like, where are we going to eat every single meal? Yes. And while we're eating one meal, we would talk about the next one. And when we would come back from a certain country, we would just have food from there for like the following few months. So when my parents went to the Caribbean and they would go to like the Virgin Islands, they would come back and we would have like all kinds of different mango salsas on a, a nice pan seared halibut or something. Or when my parents went to Morocco, we came back and we were just eating a whole lot of tagine for a while and just green olives and everything. I think it really shaped the way that I am with food. Anthony wanted to be an actor. So after college, he moved to New York City to go to acting school. Graduated, became an out-of-work actor for like six or seven years, working in restaurants the whole time. I've worked in restaurants since I was 16 as a busboy, a waiter, a manager at a Somme for a sushi restaurant. And I was just auditioning the whole time. I kind of got like tired of working in restaurants. It was really exhausting. And so a friend of mine mentioned that this guy, Ted Allen, who um, used to be on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, now the host of a successful show called Chopped on Food Network, that he lived in Clinton Hill as well and suggested that I meet him. So I met him, I became his, his friend, and then I became his personal <laughs> assistant and um, started kind of learning about the business of being a food personality and what that entailed in public speaking and developing recipes and writing a cookbook, not knowing that I was kind of preparing myself for the life hmm. that I had now, which is like kind of crazy to think about. Because I never really had aspirations to work in the food space in a professional capacity. It was always something that was kind of really intimate and personal until it wasn't. Queer Eye was, you know, taking auditions and I mentioned it to Ted and I was like, I'm kind of thinking of submitting for this. First, he was like, no, well, you're an actor. Like, that's not what you want to do. And he was like, wait, it's like, it's actually kind of perfect because it's like they don't want a traditional chef. Yeah. Um, they want somebody who is, you know, relatable to like the everyman, somebody who's just really curious about food like you are. And he was like, which was me. Like Ted was a journalist before. He didn't, he never went to culinary school. And he was like, I think that with your psych background and like understanding empathy and bedside manner and all of that, he was like, I actually think you'd be a good fit. He was like, I changed my mind. I think it's a fantastic idea. So he called the show creators and then I was submitted for the show and auditioned and I got it. And then my entire life got turned upside down in the best way possible. And um, here I am. Here you are. So after you got the show and, you know, had a lot more success and maybe more money, did you have a big splurge of something culinary? Like, I mean, when I was younger, my dream was someday I'll have a Le Creuset, you know, so expensive. Did you mm. have something that you treated yourself to? Le Creuset, I was already spoiling myself to um, at TJ Maxx. I'm a self-proclaimed <laughs> Maxinista because you can yeah. get them and they're lightly chipped and you get them significantly cheaper. Hmm. And you can also get really great all-clad pots and pans as well. Sometimes they're missing a lid or they're a little dinged up. But um, Who isn't? I'd say, exactly. Hmm. The thing that I splurged on, I love my copper. I think it's from watching Jacques Pépin episodes um, with his daughter when I was growing up and just wanting to be like every French chef out there. And Julia Child is the copper too. And, oh, totally. Oh, and both of them together. It was like I that know. was Saturday morning cartoons for I me. Know. That was like the greatest show of all time. That's how I learned how to make eggs. I have a Moviel fish poacher, which is about this big. Oh, wow. Um, so Anthony's holding his hands out to show how long this pan is. And it appears to be the size of a giant fish. You'd see some shirtless dude proudly holding up on Tinder. And it's all copper and you can poach an entire fish in it. Have I ever poached an entire fish? No. It just <laughs> but you can sits if you on want. the shelf. One day it'll happen. Okay, I couldn't help myself, and I looked up Anthony's copper fish pan, and mm -hmm, yes, uh-huh, yeah, this, this was a splurge. This was exactly the kind of splurge that we need celebrities to keep making so we can continue to look up to them. 
I was curious about what kind of fancy purchases your last meal listeners have made. So I put up the question on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell, if you're not already following. And y'all did not disappoint. As expected, there were a lot of KitchenAid mixers, Vitamixes, and Le Creuset purchases, which is so legit. A Vitamix can cost up to $600. There was mention of a $400 knife purchase. And one guy said... I installed a draft tap on my counter and built a carbonation system just for seltzer. Our biggest cookware splurge has got to be the four foot by eight foot underground oven we built in the backyard. It is called an emu and we built it so that we could cook whole pigs when we have luau's. My husband's family is from the Hawaiian islands and we have some blessed lava rocks and we grow bananas on our property. So we use the traditional method of banana stumps and banana leaves. And we have a now fire brick lined fire pit in the backyard that can fit probably about six full sized pigs or 10 humans, depending on my mood. Makes it well worth the almost $4,000 price tag. But it's not necessarily the most expensive purchases that tickled me. I'm a frugal Midwest girl way down deep in my soul, and the thought of spending $60 on a designer toaster caused me so much angst. But I needed a new toaster. My favorite color is purple. Long story short, I now own a gorgeous lilac Kate Spade toaster, and I absolutely love it. And amazingly enough, I rarely think about the price unless someone else brings it up. The most extravagant purchase I've ever made for cooking has to be butter. And I know what you're thinking, how much could you possibly spend on butter? I spent $185 on a pound of butter. I love butter. Like love butter like I love my mother. Butter is magic. So I started researching French butters, which led me to Le Bure Bordier. I don't speak French. I've probably ruined that pronunciation. That's my friend Lydia. The pound of butter was split up into five little packets, each one a different flavor. There was yuzu, Madagascar vanilla, smoked salt, seaweed, and demi-salt butter. The Madagascar vanilla butter was really something special. When you sliced into it, you could see these gorgeous brown ribbons of vanilla that had been lovingly folded over and folded over and folded over until the entire square turned this gorgeous mahogany color. I used it in a Dutch baby, which was the move. I served it to my partner for breakfast and he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, Does this have an actual baby in it? Because it tastes delicious. What a treat. Anthony's parents and siblings were born in Poland, so he grew up eating a lot of Polish food. He was also the first person in his family to be born outside of Europe. As someone who's lived in Montreal and New York, the ultimate question, which bagel do you prefer? Montreal bagels. Okay. I knew you were going to go there. So here's the thing. New York bagels are really good. Tompkins black seed there are loads of like really good bagels here but they're so big yeah they don't need to be and then and then you have these people come up with like the whole scooping method which makes me so uncomfortable where that you like scoop the inside of a bagel with it's weird thinking of like somebody made this thing and then you're asking them to modify it and throw out the insides it just feels kind of wasteful you wouldn't have that issue if you made them the montreal way because they are significantly smaller yeah and there's a place in Montreal called uh, St. Vieter Bagels where we would go after Polish school because I'm Polish on Saturday. My dad would go. He would get a dozen sesame seed and six poppy because I, I prefer sesame seed. Everything bagel seasoning was not a thing back then. Um, and the sesame seeds just have like a nice sweet, like a, a pop to them. And, like the and I would get love. Yes, exactly. 
And they would always give me like a fresh bagel while they were bagging them up for my dad, kind of like they do at a Krispy Kreme when you go. And I would get like, it was like a smoked salmon spread and there wasn't any dairy in it at all. I I always thought it was like cream cheese mixed with smoked salmon, but it was like this delicious, really salty, fishy spread. And I would just like dip the bagel into Mm. it and sesame seeds would go falling everywhere. And that was like my favorite as a kid. Nothing beats like a fresh bagel that's like still a little warm. Is the scooping thing an actual trend? Do they do that at multiple places? It's like the lower carb option. In New York, it's a thing. Even if you're ordering one on the food ordering platforms, you can ask if you want it scooped or unscooped, which I get it because it's like a lot of bread, but it's just, it feels so wasteful. And I saw someone do it once and they're just like putting their finger in there and like scooping out all the insides. And it's just like, it just kind of grosses me out a little. I feel like just eat half the bagel and then eat the other half tomorrow. Yes. Or have them prepared a different way. How you ask, I'll tell you, my dad's favorite way to have a bagel is with whipped cream cheese and like a perfect heirloom tomato cut thick with offensive amounts of fresh cracked pepper. And then a bit of like a really nice flake salt. And then the second, this is like a very Polish thing, but I think other cultures do it as well. Room temperature butter. And then just with a fork or like a little whisk, you put in a bit of honey and so you have this like buttery honey spread that you just kind of drizzle over it with, again, a little bit of flake salt. This so you get like your salty and now. your sweet. It is a bagel <laughs> show. Here we are. We do, I think we could do 30 minutes on bagels. <laughs> <laughs> it is time for a quick break. But when we come back, the history of TV dinners. Beyond the cookbooks and hosting Queer Eye, Antony also co-owns a restaurant. The Village Den is located in New York City's West Village. One thing that I read that you and I have in common is that when we were kids, we were both obsessed with TV dinners because we weren't allowed to have them. And I saw that when you opened a restaurant, you have a whole TV dinner section on there. When you were a kid, was there a particular one that you really wanted? Oh, yeah. I'm still not 100% sure what it is because I've never had one, but like a Salisbury steak, which kind of looks like it looks like a steak meets a meatloaf and it has some kind of a weird gravy on it. Yeah, that was like a quintessential Um, TV dinner item. mm -hmm. So it would be that with like a bright orange like mac and cheese. And then I've been obsessed with green peas since I was a kid as well. I've Ah. loved peas. And so I would love like a little side of peas as well. Where did your obsession of the TV dinner come from? I think it's because I couldn't have it. And it was just, it was so American. And there was also like a chocolate brownie in another compartment, which was like mind blowing to me. Like, how can all these be on the same plate? It was like a little bento box. You know, when I was a kid, before I developed a fear of flying, I would love being on planes because everything was kind of like separated into these little compartments. So I think it kind of made me think of that. And I just imagined Americans as all eating TV dinners every night. And they're like, they don't have to cook. They just have to like microwave this thing and rip off the plastic and they're good to go. When I was a little girl and I would go grocery shopping with my mom, sometimes I would steal away and walk down the frozen food aisle, dreamily peering through the glass at all the TV dinners like Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. The thing I really wanted was Stouffer's mac and cheese. It looked so creamy and gooey. It looked homemade, which was something that I had never had before. We exclusively ate the powdered cheese Kraft Blue Box mac and cheese. But there were only two times when we were allowed to have TV dinners, and that was when we had a babysitter. 
After begging and pleading, my mom finally caved and let us get what was called Kid Cuisine. I remember it had a little cartoon penguin on the front. There was always corn included in the meal, and it was not good, which did not stop me from continuing to beg my parents for it. The very first TV dinner was made by Swanson. And here to tell us more about the history is Dan Skinner, brand manager at ConAgra. They're the company that makes Hungry Man TV dinners, which is the last remaining Swanson TV dinners. The concept of what would become the TV dinner was born out of two different needs. One was for the military during uh, the latter stages of World War II. And then the other was for the arrival of commercial air travel, also kind of in that mid-1940s time period. It was something called strato plates. Uh, you had kind of a meat, potato, and a vegetable on each tray, and very easy to serve to passengers or uh, soldiers. But frozen meals only entered American homes after Swanson Food Company had a big Thanksgiving snafu in 1949. They miscalculated how many turkeys they could sell, and they had to find some way to sell that meat. They were left with 260 tons of turkey. Oh, wow. You know, we're talking about like late 1940s now into 1950s. You also had the arrival of television and people gathering around TVs when they had dinner. So there wasn't necessarily anything TV about the TV dinner. It was more just kind of a uh, marketing and, and slick packaging idea. The first year uh, in 1950, 400,000 of these TV dinners were sold. And from there, the, the industry really just kind of took off. So what was in that first TV dinner? Because it all started with this Thanksgiving turkey. Was it a Thanksgiving yes. meal? Yep. So you had, uh, you had turkey, you had potato, you had a vegetable. Uh, the vegetables were typically peas or carrots. In the 1960s was when Swanson started to bring in uh, breakfasts. And then in 1973, one of the brands that uh, kind of carries on the tradition today, Hungry Man was introduced. But of course, not everyone was happy about the TV dinner's effect on society. Smithsonian Magazine quotes a columnist named Frederick C. Offman from 1957, who says, quote, eating off a tray in the dusk before a TV set is an abomination. How are TV dinner sales doing? I'm wondering if it's as popular as it used to be or are younger people kind of shifting away from the style of eating? Yeah, you know, we saw during the pandemic with a lot of people eating at home more often, uh, we saw people returning to the frozen aisle and sales were doing really well. It was a lot of people just needing to shop for one at home. So the, the last year was an uptick in sales across all of our frozen foods. Everybody's posting on Instagram that they're making sourdough bread. And then there's this sector of Yo, people yeah, who are sure. like, we can't cook and we don't want <laughs> to. <laughs> and that's what Hungry Man is there for. Yeah. Dan says not a lot has changed in the Hungry Man world. The most popular TV dinners are still the Thanksgiving dinner, meatloaf, and Salisbury steak. Friends, you have waited long enough. After the break, Anthony will share his long-awaited last meal. Let's talk about your last meal. What would your last meal be? This is something that I think about more often than most normal people would, not because I'm cryptic, but just because I love to think about these things. So if it were to be today, and I'm going to take into account that it's also like the summer months. So like I'm eating like lighterish food. If it was the winter, it would be a very different story. So to get started, at first, it would be like the perfect 
jammy yolked egg and it would be like a beautiful farm egg from like this farm my dad's a physician he works in vermont and uh somebody who works at his hospital they actually have their own chickens and they have the best eggs i've ever had in my life mm. outside of europe and so i would have a perfect jammy yolked egg where the white is fully cooked but the yolk is really jammy scoop off the top and just a big spoon of caviar and that's how i would start my meal with maybe like a little brioche point that's like really buttered and warm and really nice and fresh that I could just like dip into the yolk afterwards. Again with the eggs and the eggs. Eggs and eggs. Yeah. I love my bitter greens. I live close to Italy, which is like a really fantastic Italian market. So I would get all kinds of like different types of like radicchios, maybe like some nice grilled peaches because those are in season right now that I would like lightly grill on like on, on a simple little grill pan or even like a charcoal barbecue would even be better with a bit of ricotta salata, which is like a nice little crumbly cheese. And then like a simple, like a lemony or like a champagne vinaigrette or something with a lot of frise, a lot of bitter greens. And then I would move on to like the perfect grilled fish, like a whole snapper or like a pompano or like a smaller white fish that's just like really flaky and delicate with just some like fresh lemon. And then I would move on to the turf part. I don't eat as much beef as I used to because the planet and like watching that documentary on Netflix like really ruined it for me. So I keep it like to special occasions, but I would have like a perfect tomahawk, medium rare, bone in loads of garlic, rosemary and thyme and a lot of butter and just keep on spooning it until it's really perfect. And then I would just like gnaw off the bone because the little bits of meat, like the little crispy parts are like my very favorite scallop potatoes. Mm. I love a perfect scallop potato. And it reminds me of those commercials, again, being obsessed with like American things where they have like those instant ready mixes. And every time I made scallop potatoes, they take me like 40 minutes to prepare. So I was like, wow, what if there were an easier type? But um, I would make my own from scratch. And then the other veggie would be, I do love asparagus, lightly grilled or on a pan till they're really nice and firm. And then because it's my last meal, I forgot about the intermezzo of like a simple pasta dish. So I would have like a pappardelle with like a wild boar ragu or like a really nice like a bolognese, just like the perfect meat sauce where it's like orange, not red, because it's not about the tomatoes, but yes. it's really about like those, the juices and the broth really cooking down with a lot of grated parm on there. And then for dessert, you know what I'm in the mood for today? A nice what? milk crepe. A milk crepe? Thin mil- meal crepe. Oh, so like oh. thousand crepes. So just oh. thin, perfect crepes with whipped cream, classic mm. vanilla. And maybe I would put a bit of sugar, like some castor or turbinado sugar on top and just torch it. So it would have like a creme brulee effect. I love berries in the summer, fresh raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, just in a bowl, no syrup, none of that, just like some fresh berries to to nosh on. And then like a cup of, is it chamomile or chamomile? Chamomile. Chamomile. I always say chamomile. I have like a perfect cup of chamomile tea and I'd be really happy. For his last meal, Anthony wants a multi-course dinner, starting with a jammy Vermont egg topped with caviar. He wants bitter greens with grilled peaches, ricotta salada, and a lemon vinaigrette, a grilled fish with lemon, a butter-basted tomahawk steak with scalloped potatoes and grilled asparagus, pasta with a perfect ragu, and a meal crepe with whipped cream and summer berries. Earlier in our conversation, Anthony talked about how international his family's dinner table was growing up. When the family went on a trip, they'd bring those culinary traditions back to their table. And a really fun way to learn about food from around the world is through Gastro Obscura. 
the culinary branch of Atlas Obscura, which is a travel website that highlights strange, quirky, spooky, kitschy places all around the world. We kind of compile the world's most remarkable, strange, incredible foods, food traditions, all the wackiest things people are doing with food around the world. We took the best of the website and we distilled it into this book, which has about 500 entries and just kind of takes you continent by continent, showing you something that hopefully you didn't already know. That's Cecily Wong, co-author of the new Gastro Obscura book. Since Antony's last meal starts with jammy chicken eggs topped with salty fish eggs, Cecily and I dove into a couple of the egg entries in the book, starting with an egg delicacy from Peru. They call them big butt ants because they have these huge butts and the butts are filled with eggs. The ants that you want to eat are the ones with the huge butts. And so they're all females and you can only harvest them with their big butts during this very, very fleeting mating season. I think it's from October to November. They're very hard to get to. They create nests that are like 20 feet below ground. And that's where the princesses, which the females are called. And then above them, there's this whole colony of worker ants that builds the nest. And then on top of that, there's all these soldier ants that protect the nest. And so if you want them, you have to get past all these levels of ants that are trying to keep you out. They're a huge delicacy, even internationally. They're, they're quite expensive. Okay, so then you have this big two-page spread in the book that is all about eggs from different animals. So I think in this country, mostly, mostly just eat chicken eggs and then fish eggs. Um, could you talk about some of the other animals that have eggs that people in other cultures eat around the world? Sure. One of the crazy ones are snail eggs. They're white, they're small, and they're orbs. They're kind of shiny, but like all snail things, snails take a really long time to produce their eggs. It takes them like two or three years. Wow. That is a long pregnancy. Yeah. Truly brutal. They, I, I guess they taste pretty interesting. They're supposed to be kind of woody and mushroom-like. And these are quite expensive. They are. I think they're like $100 for 50 grams, which is like two tablespoons. So quite expensive. Some of my favorite entries in the book are, of course, surprise, surprise, about pizza. I was so surprised to read that Norwegians eat more pizza than anyone in the world. It's so funny. Um, I don't think anyone would guess that. I think they eat like 50 million pizzas a year and 47 million of those are frozen. They're eating mostly frozen pizza. So pizza is a relative newcomer um, to Norway. It didn't show up until the 1970s. And it came with an American guy, actually, who learned to make pizza from a Neapolitan guy in New Haven. It was an instant hit. Everybody loves pizza. And soon after, the frozen pizza was born. And as legend has it, the company contracted to make the frozen pizza in Norway wasn't familiar with the dish. So they improvised and came up with what is still the national pizza topping of Norway. Tomato sauce, Jarlsberg cheese, and paprika. The super Norwegian way to eat this frozen pizza is to add extra cheese before you bake it. And then when you take it out, you drizzle it with ketchup. Oh, okay. Because before that, I was like, yeah, this sounds pretty good. But the ketchup thing is a little bit too far for me. One time I was on an Amtrak train from Seattle to Portland, and I watched this woman 
a couple seats down from me meticulously and slowly eat a little Pizza Hut pan pizza that she had <laughs> all of these ketchup packets and one by one she was squeezing them on top for every bite she took and she was eating it with a knife and a fork with almost oh. a whole ketchup packet on each bite and I could not look away. I just that stared is- at her mesmerizing it was I mean you you can't make that up maybe she was Norwegian I think that is the explanation the book also cracks the history of America's most controversial pizza the Hawaiian pizza which was not actually created by a Hawaiian it was invented by a Canadian by way of Greece but one of my favorite sections in the book is all about what they call courtship foods flirtatious rituals involving food this is a an Austrian tradition from the 19th century And basically at these kind of rural dances between singles, a thing that the women would do is take a slice of apple and put it under their armpit before a dance. And at the end of the dance, they would remove the apple slice and hand it to their dance partner if they liked him as kind of a sign of affection. And to return this sign of affection, the man had to eat the armpit apple (laughs) Um, just to prove that, you know, he was like into her pheromones. Wow. I mean, I don't know. Could he just sniff the apple? I love that he has to eat it. Yeah. No, it's hardcore. Oh, it is so hardcore. As much as I would love to, we can't end the podcast talking about armpits. So let's check back in with Anthony and talk a little bit about Queer Eye. If you haven't seen the show, it is so charming and funny and joyful. And it is basically this team of five, the Fab Five, surprising both men and women who need some help in their lives. Yes, the person does get a makeover. And yes, their entire house gets a makeover. But the show isn't as superficial as that. Bobby, Karamo, Tan, Jonathan, and Anthony go much deeper. The thing that Mm -hmm. I notice when I'm watching is you're all therapists to these people. You bring so much warmth and self-esteem to the show. Was that something that you were expected to come with or was there any kind of training? Because, you know, you're there to help them learn to cook, but there's always another side when you're working with these people. Honestly, when I look back now, I really don't know what I thought I was getting myself into in terms of like having an empathetic approach and the concept of like bedside manner and coming in and being gentle and non-judgmental and listening meeting these heroes it's like you come into their home and these are people who have never been on camera before and they're speaking to five complete strangers sometimes there's somebody who's had a really rough go at things and sometimes they've accomplished a lot of things but they've never really worked on themselves every single one of our heroes even though they're all so different they're always open to changing but they don't know how Mm -hmm. and there's something that's so touching for me in that that they're willing to actually trust five complete strangers to guide them, to try to show them that there's a different way of living or a different way of looking at things, whether it's how they approach um, their own work or how they dress themselves or how they cook for themselves or how they show their love for their family, figuring out whatever their love language is. When you see somebody open and vulnerable like that, I feel like it's like you have a responsibility to to just try to figure out how to be of service. And for one person, it's going to be teaching them that like when you're making a sandwich, your mustard and mayo should go all the way to the corner of every slice of bread and for other people it's like figuring out how to make a proper castoulet like it's different for everybody and so i just always try to listen not go in with my own assumptions of what i think i should be teaching them and just try to hear them out and figure out how i can be best of service in such a short period of time because you want them to remember it too it's not just for tv where it's like you show them something complicated they're never going to replicate again in their lives like you want it to be something that's that's sustainable that they're actually going to use once you leave 
And the thing I think people don't understand, because there's been unfair criticism about the simplicity of the food that you're teaching them or the mm-hmm. now notorious, infamous Greek yogurt guacamole, which I stand by it. It's delicious. Yeah, I feel like people don't understand what you're doing on the show. You're not there, like you said, to teach them how to make lobster thermidor or whatever. Totally. Sometimes I am, but now, now, now I want to add lobster. Thermidor. It's very retro, but now I want to add it to my last meal because I forgot to add lobster in there. That's one of my favorite things. Done. But um, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think people do have strong opinions about things. And I think at the beginning, that part was definitely challenging to navigate when I was learning, oh, like it's impossible for everyone to agree with me or everyone to like me, which was yeah. like such an important life lesson. But it just kind of reminded me to stay in my lane and to focus on what's important. And on Queer Eye specifically, it's figuring out how we can help these people. And that was Antony Porowski's Last Meal. Antony's new cookbook, Antony Let's Do Dinner, is out September 14th. Pre-order it right now or head to your favorite neighborhood bookstore on September 14th and pick up a copy. The irony of the life that I have now is that I actually don't get to cook as often as I used to where I made every meal at home, where I was home every single night of the week. I still want to eat really good food that's very diverse, whether it's Polish, nostalgic of my youth, things that I've tried in Japan when we were filming Queer Eye over there. But it's just a collection of easy-ish, quick-ish, limited ingredient-ish recipes. I I add ish to all of that because I didn't want it to be gimmicky where it was like five ingredients or less, even though I love all those cookbooks, but that's just not who I am. I kind of like to be a little flexible with it. And it offers loads of substitutions because I think one thing that the pandemic especially has taught us is that you have to cook with what you got sometimes. And that's what's so fun about cooking, right? So that's kind of what I get to do in Let's Do Dinner. Thanks to Dan Skinner from ConAgra Foods and Cecily Wong, co-author of Gastro Obscura. Gastro Obscura is out October 12th. And of course, you can also pre-order it. Thanks to all the listeners who shared their fancy kitchen purchases, including my friend Lydia. I don't regret spending $185 on that butter. In fact, I'll absolutely do it again. And after the last couple years that we've had away from our family and friends, just trying to live and to stay healthy, I think it's more important than ever to reward yourself with the little fancy moments. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen. If you're not already following along, Find me on Instagram at Hello Rachel Bell. That's B-E-L-L-E. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure and give us a five-star review. And if you just have 30 seconds to spare, you could write up a little review. It actually does help get the podcast out to more people. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Mm-hmm.